Good afternoon. It's Friday the 11th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today, we've got Patrick Henningsen and Vanessa Bailey. Welcome to the programme both. Now we're going to get straight on very quickly with, well, the economy and uh, well, the UK, well, the Office for National St Statistics has uh, announced that uh, UK's GDP is down 0.2% uh, in the period July to September 2022. And of course, all the mainstream headlines uh, talking about us entering recession. Uh, the Bank of England believing we're going to end in, uh, enter the longest-running recession in history. Uh, ONS says that the quarterly fall was driven by manufacturing, which saw widespread declines across most industries. Services were flat overall, but consumer-facing industries fared badly, with a notable fall in retail. I think we haven't seen anything just yet. But don't worry, uh, Jeremy Hunt is riding to the rescue, although he does say that there'll be no, that there's no illusion that there's a tough road ahead, one which requires extremely difficult decisions to restore confidence and economic stability. Um, so things not looking so great in the UK. But just to, to make the point here, Patrick, uh, if we look at GDP in the UK over the last uh, uh, several decades, um, really what, we're, what we see is we have not yet recovered from the uh, economic collapse 2008, but equally the government decision, uh, economic decisions around COVID and GDP still has not uh, reached levels or it hadn't reached levels above those uh, just in the run up to the lockdowns and so on in uh, early 2020. Uh, and since we've headed south again, um, we're not likely to for some time to come. Uh, but in the US, uh, it's, it's a very similar picture. Yeah, I think both both the uh, all economies, uh, European, UK, and US, uh, and Canada as well, are going to be suffering from stagflation, which is a stagnant economy. Nobody wants to use the big R word, which is recession, which used to mean two consecutive quarters of uh, negative growth. And now they're just expunged it from the vocabulary altogether because nobody wants to own that politically. So a st stagnant economy plus a creeping inflation. And a lot of things that are driving inflation are to do with, for instance, uh, fuel and energy. Um, and the governments do not seem to have any solutions to that, or they're not implementing any policies that are going to radically uh, reverse that. So we're just kind of being, we're creeping along. And meanwhile, a lot of prices of staples are compounding. So the uh, month on month or year on year inflation is actually compounding um, as we speak. So um, that's not going to make life any easier for anybody um, who's uh, struggling to make ends meet each month because I don't see the pay rises coming uh, that correspond with the uh, rises in uh, food and essential goods, fuel and energy. Uh, indeed. Uh, but of course, one of the one of the big economic problems we've been facing for a couple of years now has been uh, the, the lack of availability, uh, supply side problems and uh, China, a big part of that with their continuing COVID zero policy. But RT here reporting that China's perhaps easing that a little bit. Yeah, so I think I think there's there seems to be a sea change in thinking uh, in China. Um, they've been absolutely uh, devastated. I mean, China has to balance two things, which is um, you know keeping control of society, um, but also keeping their economy ticking along. And the zero COVID policy is just being seen as one of the things that has dev been devastating um, for the Chinese economy. So. Um, I think there's they're rethinking this, and so this is covering this. It's it's one of the only uh, news outlets I found that is covering this. So 
Um, I know the British government will deem this as Russian propaganda, but here we're going to put it up. Uh, so, so the global markets have responded to a change in Chinese COVID policy. This is really important. And so there are, little, there are other uh, factors around, including the U.S. election, um, that might have caused um, the markets to react positively just because people know where things are going in the next couple of months or the next quarter. But when China does a major policy shift on something like COVID, i.e. lockdowns and shutting down Beijing or, or Shanghai, for instance, um, and the markets react positively to it, this is really encouraging because it might send a message to other governments um, that maybe this this is what you need to do right now going forward in this situation and not um, this winter uh, pursue sort of draconian policies that might um, destroy uh, economic growth and uh, disrupt supply chains and all the rest of it. So I think for, for China, I don't think there's uh, there's there room to maneuver economically um, considering the trade war, the diplomatic war with the United States and also with other countries in Europe who adopting a more strident policy towards China for whatever geopolitical reasons. Um, this is one area that China um, can alleviate some of its uh, uh, economic issues. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to Ukraine then. Um, and well, here's Rishi looking very moody. Uh, this is him speaking, apparently, according to the UK government, speaking to Zelensky uh, this morning. Um, and they agreed that uh, the well, they say that they agreed that any Russian withdrawal from the occupied city of Kherson would uh, demonstrate strong progress uh, for Ukrainian forces and reinforce the weakness of Russia's military offensive. But that, uh, but but it was right to continue to exercise caution until the Ukrainian flag was raised over the city. So the rhetoric from uh, the UK is as it uh, usually is. Uh, and uh, well, in the meantime, Ben Wallace and Rishi Sunak have uh, announced. Here's Ben Wallace with uh, his. Ukrainian counterpart. Uh, they have announced that uh, the UK is going to uh, complete the delivery of a thousand uh, additional surface-to-air missiles uh, for the Ukrainian for, uh, military. The commitment of hundreds more surface-to-air missiles continues our defensive support for Ukraine against Russian aggression and will help Ukraine counter the threat from illegal targeting of critical national infrastructure is what uh, Ben Wallace had to say. Uh, in the meantime, then, the joint, uh, uh, the JEF was getting together, uh, and uh, here they all are, the various countries uh, involved in this. So this is uh, the Joint Expeditionary Force, uh, and uh, we've got uh, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom all represented there. Uh, and at that meeting then, they announced uh, that the Netherlands is going to contribute another 100 million euros to the International Fund for Ukraine, uh, and uh, Norway about 145 million euros uh, to the International Fund for Ukraine. So, uh, uh, Patrick, the, the, uh, the funding continues, the arms continue to roll in, and therefore the war continues. Yeah, approaching what we call a frozen conflict, um, this sort of situation where the status quo is something much like the Cold War or, you know, North Korea, South Korea. Russia's quite aware of all of these arms shipments. Um, they're calculating this in, they're tracking them and so forth. And the reality is that anything that's brought into Ukraine can be sort of, uh, you know, liquidated very quickly um, through Russian missile strikes and things like that. So, um, and, and by the way, they're also aware of how long it takes for these things to cycle in. Um, a lot of the commitments, like for instance, the U.S. has made uh, for Ukraine in terms of, you know, more HIMAR missiles or 
uh, more sort of defense equipment and gear and so forth. A lot of this stuff is going to be on back order uh, for the next year, maybe two. Um, so not everything is going to make it to the field. A lot of this is also political. These announcements are political. Um, they need to show their support uh, for Ukraine to kind of keep morale up. You can see that this was a big, uh, this was a big motivation for the U.S. Uh, to say that they wanted to promote, uh, pursue peaceful negotiations uh, with between Russia and sort of because they didn't want the European partners to lose heart. You can see so so much of this is politics and PR at this point in terms of strategy. It, things are hardening on the ground there, and positions are hardening, and we might be getting into a, a situation where there, you could see negotiations. But meanwhile, all of this gear and all of these sort of defense agreements, which have been great profit centers for Western defense contractors, they'll just keep on trying to roll these in uh, as, as they go along. Uh, indeed. Uh, and speaking of uh, politics and particularly PR, Vanessa, then we had uh, uh, Sean Penn. Uh, we, we just mentioned this in passing on, on Wednesday, but uh, I mean, gifting an Oscar to uh, Zelensky, how far does the PR have to roll on? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I mean, this is uh, Sean Penn's third visit. Of course, he's not the only celebrity that has appeared in the company of Zelensky. But Penn has a very extensive history of appearing in the right country at the right time um, for the oligarchs and, and the billionaire complex uh, in the United States. And here we don't see any different, of course, what I, what I find quite extraordinary here, um, we've got a little video to show him um, presenting his Oscar to Zelensky. I did see quite a funny comment on Twitter that, well, that will be melted down and, and put into the coffers for the, Zelensky's retirement. Um, and uh, with Penn stating that he hopes to see uh, Zelensky <clears throat> in Malibu uh, once Ukraine has won the war, of course. But um, I don't know if you have the video ready, Mike. Yeah, let's play it. Sean. Yes. <laughs> no, please. It that is yours. No, I, I feel terrible outside. I just, it's just a symbolic, silly thing. Yes, but, but it's, I, if okay. I know, but if I know this is here with you, then I'll, then I'll feel better and stronger to, for the fight. It's so great, great honor, but, yeah. but until we will. When you, when you win, bring it back to Malibu. Right. Yes. Great. Okay. Because I'll feel okay. much better knowing there's a piece of me here. It's not from me. It's from Ukraine. And it's more. The first man who was here was this guy, I think you know him. That is the date, and here you, you can read if you don't know this guy. That is a great honor today. There are three places in the world that all the pride of my life will be. The place where my daughter was born, the place where my son was born, and this. Thank you. Well, I mean, um, not much more I can add to that, to be honest. No. 
Um, I did mention, I mean, Sean Pan, I wrote about previously in relation to COVID-19 and celebrity humanitarianism. Sean Pan is the epitome of that. Um, his core response organization um, was running mobile PCR centers across the United States. And of course, he was instrumental in pushing the COVID narrative throughout its um, the project's existence. But what I'm coming to here, and, and Pan is very closely involved in what I'm working on for UK Column, and this is just a bit of a teaser for people, the article hopefully will finally be finished this weekend and published next week. Um, back in March 2022, Josh Rogan wrote an article for the Washington Post, um, referenced the Syrian white helmets are ready to help uh, Ukrainians save civilians under Russian attacks. Um, we have seen, if people followed uh, the Syria conflict and followed the um, exploits of the White Helmets and MI6 uh, military intelligence incubated organization embedded with the terrorist groups inside Syria and tasked with producing the chemical weapon attack um, stories in order to criminalize the Syrian government, the last being the Duma chemical attack in 2018, which was discredited um, by the OPCW inspectors who went on the ground to investigate the alleged attack. Um, <clears throat> basically, um, what we've been seeing more recently in Ukraine are particularly uh, in Kiev are uh, very similar productions um, TV productions, news productions on the alleged Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure. We saw a couple that were exposed to be real-time um, fake attacks. Now, this is very similar to the White Helmet operations in Syria. What I'm writing about, which is based on documents leaked to myself and to UK Column, um, that both Canada and the United States are looking at funding for the White Helmets to get more involved in Ukraine. And one can only assume they're not going to go to Ukraine, but what they will be doing is offering advice and assistance um, to the Ukrainians, we assume to the NATO-backed elements within Ukraine that are fighting Russia. Um, we're seeing them anyway promoting <clears throat> the Azov battalions and the anti-Russia uh, rhetoric from inside Syria. Um, Sean Penn is closely connected, of course, through various channels, but also people might remember him um, being uh, used by the BBC to effectively discredit those that had exposed the role of the White Helmets inside Syria. So I'm just drawing together a few of the threads. Other threads are Kosovo, another connection to Kosovo amongst those that are backing the White Helmet moves to be more involved in Ukraine. Um, so watch this space next week. Okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. Now, uh, let's move on to uh, back to the UK and uh, UK government pushing this out this morning. The UK has sanctioned 18.3 billion pounds of Russian assets. And they're saying that this is new data, which has been released uh, yesterday, revealing the full effect of UK sanctions on Russia. They're not uh, discussing the effect of UK sanctions on Russia 
on the UK. But anyway, uh, okay. Uh, this is the organization that they've set up, the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation uh, at the uh, Treasury. Uh, and so the numbers have come out of their annual review, which is uh, covering April 2021 until August 2022. Uh, and so, of course, the propaganda pieces came out uh, to, uh, to explain us in numbers, to us in numbers, uh, the extent of the sanctions, 18 billion of Russian assets frozen, 1,200 people sanctioned, including 120 oligarchs, more than 120 businesses sanctioned, uh, assets of 19 Russian banks, uh, see, uh, frozen, sorry, Russia's GDP predicted to decline by 6.2% in 2022 compared to pre-invasion trend. Uh, Russian imports of critical goods dropped by 68% from sanctioning countries. 60% uh, of Russia's foreign reserves immobilized and over 1,000 foreign businesses have left Russia. Uh, and uh, Patrick, you're going to have to, sorry, just put that back up on screen one second, uh, Stephanie, thanks. Uh, Patrick, you're going to have to explain to me how uh, Russian imports of critical goods having dropped by 68% from sanctioning countries is a good thing for sanctioning countries? Well, it depends if they, if they want uh, uh, reliable and affordable supplies of goods, uh, of energy, of fuel, um, to, to balance their books, to run their economies, um, to be sort of in the red, as it were, um, or to be in the black, as it were. Um, that's the question. So. Is, is it a good thing to restrict markets and to uh, create a bifurcated uh, global economy uh, by cutting out Russia, which is the world's largest overall uh, basket of commodities producer uh, in the world? We're talking about fuel, agricultural products, um, rare earth uh, minerals, et cetera, all sorts of uh, stuff in the sort of chemical and, and agricultural industrial complex. Um, Russia is a main supplier to so many of these different sectors. So, in in and energy on top of that, is that is that something that's good for these countries' uh, economies? And to pay, I don't know, four times the price for liquefied natural gas to be transported across the Atlantic Ocean by boat, uh, with lots of disruptions uh, in in supply and things like that, is that something that uh, you can run the first world economy on? That's the question. Uh, very good question. Uh, now, Vanessa, let's come back then to uh, Israel and Iran. Mm. Um, a couple of days ago, um, there was an attack on an Iranian oil convoy that was coming in through uh, the Iraq-Syrian border at Al-Bukhamal. Um, there is some contention over who carried out the attack. Initially, it was believed to have been a United States attack. Now it's uh, more likely to have been an Israeli attack with the usual claim um, that the tankers contained weapons and were being sent into Lebanon. The reality, of course, is the two tankers that were destroyed were carrying much-needed oil reserves for uh, Lebanon, which is at the moment extremely energy-deprived, of course, following um, the port explosion uh, in Beirut a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, 25, well, there are numbers between 15 and 25, but the latest being 25 Syrian Arab army soldiers and civilians lost their lives in the attack. So the illegal aggression against Syria and against uh, essential civilian supplies continues by Israel. Yeah, and just very briefly, Vanessa, what, what, if we were to compare the energy situation in Lebanon with, with Syria at the moment, which, which country is worse off? 
Um, <laughs> I was just in Lebanon um, last week. Uh, I, I would say actually they're on a par from an energy perspective, from an economic perspective. Uh, Lebanon is actually doing far worse than Syria, to give you an idea. Lebanon now, um, the, the Lebanese uh, currency is at more than 30,000 to the dollar. In Syria, we're at around 5,000 to the dollar. I see. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up uh, at the UK column shop. Um, but please uh, do share material you find on the various platforms as far and wide as possible. And I just want to give a quick advertisement uh, to um, the Children's Health Defence Europe, who are holding a press conference on Monday uh, that, that's 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Uh, Central European time. So that'll be 9 a.m. It starts in the UK. Uh, this will be uh, pushed out on the UK column website on Monday uh, if you want to watch it. Um, and uh, well, what are they saying about it? Well, basically, they're, they're saying that there have been too many safety indications that clearly demonstrate the unnecessary harm and death caused by a vaccine, in inverted commas, which is uh, admittedly ineffective uh, and has been stopped in some countries due to the surfacing scandalous revelations related to the procurement, procurement and approval procedures. Uh, and so they're ho hosting a press conference because they're, uh, it's basically a call for action on this. Uh, participating will be... Uh, Amongst others, Catherine Austin Fitz, Dr. Meryl Nass, um, Dr. Mary Holland, uh, Professor Sukrit Bhakti, um, Wolfgang Wodarg will be there as well. So uh, keep an eye on the UK column website for that on Monday. Okay, Patrick, let's uh, move across the United States then and uh, the midterms. So the US midterm elections on Tuesday, I don't know how the coverage has been uh, in, in the UK uh, and elsewhere. But uh, we're going to look at uh, the aftermath of the midterms. So the results are almost in. Everything's kind of still in flux. Uh, we'll show you what's still left unaccounted for. Uh, but this is the problem that we're facing. So the red wave, uh, the red wave didn't actually materialize. It actually was a red ripple. Um, so Democrats are doing a victory lap because it wasn't as bad as expected. Uh, so we'll we'll break that down a little bit, but this is going to have huge implications, not just in the U.S., but also globally um, as well. Let's just take a look. This is the U.S. Senate map here. This is real clear politics. So there's still uh, three Senate races uh, left uh, to be decided. One of them is Nevada. They're slow walking the votes in Nevada, and the other is Arizona. That's where the big controversy is. This is where I am right now. Uh, at the epicenter of all this controversy in Maricopa County, Arizona. And Georgia is yet to be decided. That's going to go to a runoff uh, between the Democrat uh, incumbent, Raphael Warnock, and the Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. That's going to be on December 6th. Now, you can see where the land lies here. Uh, the Republicans have a one-seat edge right now. It's likely that the Republicans are going to take Nevada, take that Senate seat. If we go back to the U.S. Senate, please. Uh, yeah. We're not there yet. Right. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, so Nevada is is going to take that Senate seat for Republicans. It's likely, although not certain, the way things are going with the vote counting. Arizona, uh, the, the Democratic uh, incumbent has the lead, Mark Kelly, um, uh, over the challenger, Blake Masters, a Republican. But the, the 
votes could come in at the last minute and change that. But at the moment, that would leave the Georgia runoff to, to be decided if the Republican Herschel Walker loses, it would go back to a tie in the U.S. Senate. And the tie-breaking vote is with Kamala Harris, the vice president, who is a Democrat. If they win in Georgia, it'll be likely a deep majority for Republicans. So that's that's what we're looking at here. Again, it could change one or two seats, but it, so it's a tie or a Republican majority in the Senate. Massive implications for U.S. foreign policy, but also a lot of domestic policy issues as well. So that will decide where the country's headed. Now, for the House of Representatives, uh, the Republicans were a massive margin. Uh, we're talking about 20 to 30 seats. That's what the polling looked like in the election. It didn't materialize. So there's still 26, around 26 seats still outstanding the votes. And so uh, the, the margin's going to probably look like, and a lot of those seats... Uh, in California, for instance, a lot of, and also there's some in Arizona and elsewhere. So what's that mean? There's probably going to be a Republican majority, but it's going to be a slim majority. It's going to be sort of eight to 10 seats. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll explain to you what that means uh, a little bit later, but uh, suffice to say, um, that's bad news for the Democrats. It's going to handcuff Joe Biden for the next two years if Joe Biden survives. The governor's races, as you can see in gray here, uh, those two states in gray, dark gray, that's Nevada and Arizona. Those are two governor's races yet to be decided as well. There's still votes out in Alaska. So what does that mean? It might not mean a lot nationally, but if you consider Nevada and Arizona are two swing states that could do uh, major election reforms uh, with their gov new governors and new senators, for instance, and uh, other offices, that means that those swing states might be tightening up their election rules and you won't see this one week of vote counting. We don't have in Arizona. We have election week or election month now. A lot of people are looking at this, scratching their heads, saying, what is going on? We'll show you some details of that. So here's the big controversy. It all began on election day. As soon as the polls open, 30% of the uh, voting centers in Maricopa County, this is the biggest county in Arizona. You can't win Arizona or decide an election unless Maricopa County is done counting its votes and they had defective voting machines. So there were problems with the printing of the ballots, the scanners weren't picking it up, and it was also centered in a lot of Republican-dominated uh, precincts. So a lot of people are suspicious that there might have been foul play. What's going on here? The, the result is this potential disenfranchisement, voter suppression. That was literally at the beginning of play on election day, and it got worse from there. And so now we're in a situation where, and this is an article here, um, Arizona's elections are an international embarrassment. And there's commentary here that's worth reading uh, from a, a few different commentators on this issue. But they're still counting the votes. There's still votes coming in. And we won't be able to call these races now, and they're talking about Monday. First, it was, it's early next week. So 48 other states have managed to figure out how to count their votes. Bigger states, in fact. Arizona, however has this other system of running their elections. At the moment, it is a Democrat-run uh, electoral system. Uh, the Secretary of State is actually running for governor against Carrie Lake, Katie Hobbs. So she didn't recuse herself uh, from this situation. So a lot of people are looking at this as a conflict of interest. But not only that, it's just not working. It's, it's become an embarrassment nationally. And they're just basically burying their heads on this. 
and saying everything's fine. Uh, the, the, the election commissioner who's in charge of all this, believe it or not, his name's Bill Gates. Um, and Bill Gates is all over CNN saying uh, everything's fine. It's no problem. We're just being extra careful. But you can see what they're, they're holding up, potentially the U.S. Senate in uh, uh, some kind of a result there. Um, and they're also holding this up for the state of Arizona. So this is, and the AGs in there as well, Secretary of State. Uh, these are state legislatures races. State legislatures are going to decide election rules as they do in each state. Huge implications, and nobody knows what the results are. And there's a lot of reports of problems and potential election uh, fraud, mismanagement, stakes, whatever you want to call it, massive uh, reports coming in all different shapes and sizes. And a lot of people are suspicious, considering this was the epicenter of the 2020 electoral scandal as well. So all these people were called election deniers, and now they've been vindicated in a way because of this debacle that's unfolding here. So uh, we'll... Carrie Lake is is running for governor. She's in the middle of all this right now. I think we have a clip from her. She kind of explains where things are at from her perspective. There are over 620,000 ballots left to be counted. More than 380,000 of them, Chris, are people who took their early mail-in ballot didn't want to mail it, didn't want to use one of those drop boxes. They chose to walk it up on election day to a polling place and hand it to a poll worker. And these are people who are going to go heavily Republican. And they have not been counted yet. The vast majority, we believe, of these votes left to be counted are going to go heavily in our favor. And they haven't been counted. Maricopa County in Arizona has been slow to count their votes. Once again, Maricopa County slow rolling the results and it's it causes problems it causes distrust in the system and it really uh, it hurts the whole country everyone's waiting to find out will blake masters pull out a victory i believe he will i'm a hundred percent certain we're going to win but we need to get a system in place where we actually have results on election night this is ridiculous i've been sounding the alarm since 2020 with that election which had major problems and nobody wanted to talk about it they called me an election denier well here we are two more elections since then, including the primary in this one, and we have the same problems. We can't have Arizona constantly holding the entire country up with election results. And when I win, when they announce my victory, and I think it will be soon, and we're going to win handily, we're going to get to work to restore faith in our elections. So she's, she's that's fighting talk from Carrie Lake. She's a Republican. Uh, in this race at the moment, uh, the it's it's fifty point three percent, and she uh, Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, and forty nine point five percent Carrie Lake. That's with seventy eight percent of the votes turned in. Supposedly, depending on uh, the reporting, is not super accurate. It really depends on who you trust on the reporting. So we'll see what happens. Who knows? Anything's possible in this kind of electoral environment. That's all I'll say. Um, it's very uncertain what the results will be, although she's very confident, Carrie Lake, that she's going to win, that those are all Republican votes hanging that to be counted. But in this in this kind of environment, it's completely chaotic. There's a lot of things being said, uh, a lot of things that people just don't know. And there's still truckloads of ballots ap- appearing uh, from these different districts. The problem here, Mike, is that Arizona, because of COVID-19, um, 
and, and other policies of sending out massive mail-in ballots, they don't know how many ballots are out there. And so then you get these returns. There's a lot of uh, due diligence that needs to happen, signature verifications. Um, I think it's probably going to be rife for fraud um, just because of the scale of the mail-in ballots. This is what people have been warning about for, for years. And the one side it tends to favor mail-in ballots is the Democrats because statistically more Democrats are voting early and by mail. More Republicans want to go in on the day and cast their vote. So you can see the schism um, that's been created here. And so the other thing that is because of COVID, they got rid of local precincts and they did these massive voting uh, centers, they call them. So less places to vote, bigger voting operations. But uh, as you know, when you centralize everything, if there's any problems in the design, the management or the administration or technical, it reverberates more quickly through the system and you can't locate the problem, funny enough. And so getting rid of local precincts and things like this, that's an accountability issue as well. So a lot of people want to go back to paper ballots uh, in Arizona. Certainly the rural counties are pushing that in the courts. But Maricopa County is in a world on its own um, and is very much a fight, partisan fight here between Democrats and Republicans to wrestle control over a lot of things, including election processes. But let's look at some of the big takeaways of the midterm elections here. J.D. Vance uh, won his Senate race in Ohio. And you have to realize this is a best-selling author who wrote a book, um, uh, a Hillbilly Elegy, about sort of lamenting the demise of the Rust Belt and working-class America. He's gone and run for Senate, a total political novice. He's won, and that's a big, big win in a state like Ohio. And that used to be a swing state, and it's very much a Republican state now. So that's, that's a major sort of thing. And you're going to see him as a kind of intellectual now in the Senate. So there's a different kind of breed of politician. There's a few other people, young people like this, newcomers um, into politics on the Republican side, citizen politicians, they're called. Some were successful, some made it in, some didn't, but ran very strong races like Tiffany Smiley for governor uh, in Washington. And there's some others as well. Carrie Lake, you could probably put in that category too. Uh, her race is yet to be decided. So that's a big takeaway. That's something new in American politics. And some people would say interesting, maybe even exciting. But the big one here in terms of trends, changing the electoral map uh, is Florida. What uh, Ron DeSantis romped home to an incredible victory, like a landslide, which has never been seen before, uh, especially in a state like Florida, which used to be regarded as a swing state, but now it's changed. How did it change so quickly? That's the question. And uh, let's, let's take a look at the result here. I mean, a complete landslide, a blowout uh, of Charlie Crist there. And I think Charlie Crist, former governor of Florida as well, just got destroyed. They even lost a Democrat stronghold like Miami-Dade County, decades, a, a Democrat lock, major population center in South Florida. It's now Republican. Latino voters fleeing the Democratic Party fleeing the woke agenda and all of this stuff going into the Republican camp. So they've changed it. This is no longer a swing state. The Democrat, it's an extinction level event for Democrats um, in Florida. I don't even think they have a national office um, in the whole state now. This is unprecedented. What does this mean? That means it's going to really alter the presidential race in 2024. So Florida, Texas, um, uh, Ohio, 
Virginia, the uh, congressional seats in Virginia swinging Republican. That's 100 plus electoral votes just with those four states that, that are locked in for Republicans in 2024. So this is like new territory for American politics, at least uh, in this era. So that's something interesting. But here's the real demographic on Florida. Look at this. What does that say? Men aged 18 to 29, 61% voted for Ron DeSantis. So that, that, that sort of confounds the Democrats' kind of strategy or the demographics you'd associate with uh, liberal ideas, liberal policies. So what does this mean? This is this freedom uh, agenda that Ron DeSantis has been pushing in Florida, making it a haven for lockdowns or people fleeing vaccine mandates and things like this and sort of woke indoctrination of uh, children in schools, creating a a sanctuary for these things in Florida and zero state income tax um, as well. It seems to be appealing to that age group. Could that trend go national? In other words, would other governors adopt similar policies looking at these numbers? That's the thing you gotta look out for. That could uh, fundamentally alter politics in the United States uh, going forward. So I think we have DeSantis gave a victory speech that shocked a lot of people, how um, some might call aggressive, but he really hit out at the kind of woke ideology um, in a way that nobody has ever heard before and with the results of the election um, behind him on this. So let's go ahead and listen to this. It's incredible. And so today, after four years, the people have delivered their verdict. Freedom is here to stay. We saw freedom in our very way of life, and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. We chose facts over fear. We chose education over indoctrination. We chose law and order over rioting and disorder. Florida was a refuge of sanity when the world went mad. We stood as a citadel of freedom for people across this country and indeed across the world. States and cities governed by leftist politicians have seen crime skyrocket. They've seen their taxpayers abused. They've seen medical authoritarianism imposed, and they've seen American principles discarded. The woke agenda has caused millions of Americans to leave these jurisdictions for greener pastures. We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have respected our taxpayers. And we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Strong words. (laughs) So I think there's going to be some people not happy about that. um, And 
especially looking at his result, uh, that huge victory, landslide victory, and that's the platform. It's a pro-freedom platform. So this is going to be very interesting going forward. Now we'll talk about that. Ron DeSantis has now positioned himself in poll position as the kind of top Republican potential candidate for the 2024 election that's creating a rub with Donald Trump. But here's a good piece here in the tablet, and it's the, the headline is the status quo wins. And just a snippet here, assuming that the House is captured by Republicans, it's likely to do that, with or without the Senate, it's clear that the progressive policy agenda, the progressive theory of American partisan politics and progressive theory of American constitution are now quite dead. So this is interesting. Um, there's a lot of indications here that the Democrats are going to be forced to the center. They're going to have to abandon a lot of these things that have been uh, that are going to be a disaster uh, going into 2024. So here's the big question. Nigel Farage, uh, former Brexit leader in the UK, he was saying this. There's a titanic clash coming between DeSantis and Trump. Trump's already trolling DeSantis on social media, and there's a little bit of an internecine war going on in the Republican Party now, and a real the toxicity of Trump that Repub some Republicans are, are calling here the media. It's time he steps down. The Real Clear Politics published an open letter. Donald, it's time to step down. You've got to make way for the next generation, the new young leaders like Ron DeSantis, Trump's uh, threatening, saying, no, 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 I'm not, gonna, I'm not going anywhere sort of thing. He's supposed to announce his presidential run uh, on Tuesday and to great fanfare. But this result in Florida has caused a little bit of big rift, actually, within the party. So this is, might be interesting. The competition could be healthy uh, for the Republican Party, but this is the big talk now. Where is it going to go? I think it's generally healthy for the uh, conversation in America. So going on here, just an interesting side note here. John Fetterman, uh, who we talked about previously, um, who's suffering from a mental disability after a stroke, uh, he won his race uh, for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania and uh, more or less tracking pretty much how Joe Biden performed in 2020 in that state. Now, why is this significant? This is um, obviously an important Senate pickup seat here, but he had a noticeable disability um, where people were calling into question his cognitive abilities and so forth. So, and, and yet he was still pushed over the line by Democratic voters. So very cynically, many were saying that, you know, we don't care uh, what his sort of physical condition is, um, that, you know, he's basically, we're going to have him anyway. So, uh, here's, so here's a, here's an image here to take a look at, um, in the, uh, the next image. So that's John Fetterman on the left-hand side, and that's Tony DeLuca. Tony DeLuca, what are these, these two people here are kind of indicative of where Democratic voters are. John Fetterman with his, uh, unfortunate disability, um, still voted in as a U.S. senator, uh, a very important job, very demanding job. And Tony DeLuca, a state legislature veteran, a Democrat, um, DeLuca uh, died two months before the election, and they still voted him in. So and we go on to the headline, Pennsylvania Democrats elect a dead lawmaker to their state legislature. And so that's just the ultimate in terms of where things are at. That's kind of in a nutshell tells you where what, what, what we're going to call this hyper-partisan tribalism and pure power politics. 
and this isn't the only race, actually. And here's here's what the uh, the Democrats said in Pennsylvania: We're incredibly saddened by the loss of Representative Tony DeLuca, but we're proud to see voters to continue to show their confidence in him and his commitment to democratic values by reelecting him posthumously. A, a special edition will follow. I mean, this is just unbelievable. But that tells you, you know, that it doesn't matter who's they don't care who's running, it's kind of making a mockery or a farce of the whole sort of democratic process. And that's not the only one here. Just go to this Newsweek article, a full list of dead people who won their elections on Tuesday. So it wasn't the only one, although those uh, he was probably the most high-profile case, but he, sadly he uh, died of lymphoma, a great tragedy, and a very popular and, a, and by all accounts a wonderful man in the Pennsylvania State Legislature. But uh, he did pass away uh, well before the election, and they still put him in. So that's going to mean there's going to have to be a special uh, election. So this this also happened in San Diego uh, with Chula, the Chula Vista uh, district. There, the Democratic Party um, had their nominee, um, who's Simon Silva. He died before the election as well. They pushed, knowing that there's going to be a special election. That's a way to kind of eliminate, uh, at least temporarily the Republican challenger, by electing the person who has actually died. So it's kind of a cynical uh, strategy electorally, but it's completely legal, and it's been done more than once in this election cycle. That tells you something about where uh, American politics are at. So um, speaking of uh, animatronic, uh, uh, not fully compass mentis uh, dolls and politicians, Joe Biden has been given a breath of new life because the damage just wasn't as bad as a lot of people anticipated. So Joe's kind of in a, with a confident stride. He's a bit cocky. He's uh, taking his time, of course, during his press conference afterwards, but kind of a victory lap, as it were. But really, it's a stay of execution, in my opinion, and other people's opinion. This is just kind of a temporary situation he's in where it wasn't as bad as people expected. So the knives aren't out yet for Joe Biden from the Democrat Party and the media. But give it time, and the race in Georgia, and also the results of Arizona, Nevada, but especially the runoff in Georgia, that's going to decide. If they lose the House, there's no cause for victory. They would have lost the House and the Senate, the Democrats. And so that means Joe Biden is an ultimate lame duck, handcuffed, and he'll be tortured by Republicans for the next two years if he survives. He says he's going to run uh, he said so in the press conference yesterday. But we've got he, here is uh, him being asked whether there's going to be any changes to any of these policies that have hurt the Democrats in this election and going forward. And listen to his answer. It's incredible. In fact, 75 percent of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction, despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. So I'm not going to change anything in any fundamental way. So, <laughs> he doesn't see anything wrong. It's all good. Uh, Biden's happy. The Democrats. So I don't think any lessons were learned here. So what is a Republican House of Representatives going to mean for the Biden administration, for the country. Let's take a look. It's going to mean, firstly, investigations. 
there, there will be probably uh, uh, House investigations and maybe Senate hearings in Hunter Biden, um, the, his international business dealings, Ukraine, China, the laptop, all of it. Uh, the FBI has been uh, labeled as a kind of partisan uh, bouncer for the Democratic Party. That's going to come in front of Congress now, and most most likely, there's calls to by some people in the U.S. government to defund or break up the FBI, uh, to get rid of it, to scrap it. It's just become a monster, a partisan monster. And the recent link by uh, leak by the Intercept where they're working with big tech firms, meeting with big tech, DHS, FBI, to censor uh, Americans, users on the major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, LinkedIn, all of it. Um, that's got a lot of people really worried about the direction of the federal government under this administration. Uh, so that big tech censorship, that's going to basically come, I think, in front of a, a major forum there, and there's going to be a reckoning there. Uh, and also with COVID, now, that could, the COVID thing could go either way. It could go into sort of lab leak territory, i.e. Rand Paul origins of COVID. That, to me, would be a waste of uh, opportunity for the Republicans. So the question is, what are they going to do with this power if they get it? Are they going to capitalize? Is it going to be something meaningful? Or is it going to go into sort of a, uh, you know, a controlled opposition kind of black hole that sucks all the energy and uh, opportunity and people's uh, animus and anger, whatever, and just just diverts it. So we'll see whether they deliver uh, in substantially on any of this stuff. It's also going to mean impeachment for Joe Biden. There's probably going to be an impeachment in the House. Probably he's not going to be convicted in the Senate. So it'll be more of a sort of uh, kind of political circus, as it will, as it were, much like with Trump, but maybe with a little more substance. With Biden, he is implicated in. A lot of things, and there's actual evidence to uh, bring a case against him. Alejandro Mayorkas for the open border fiasco, um, the DHS secretary appointed by Biden, he will most likely get impeached as well. There's a few other people that might be on the chopping block, including the head of the CDC, uh, Walensky. Um, and the vaccine issue may or may not come into play here. And I don't know if it will. The establishment's very strong in protecting big pharma, so I'm not holding my breath. And I don't think many people are. The economy, a Republican House is going to look to act to control inflation. That means no more giant spending bills, no COVID relief, no Biden student loan uh, bailouts and all these things to buy votes ahead of the elections and sort of massive spending, quantitative easing, stimulus bills, multi-trillion dollar spending packages, the things that made Nancy Pelosi um, the sort of the queen with the gavel for the Democrats uh, and the, the cause of inflation, that's going to come to an end. The other thing, they're going to put the brakes on green energy and great reset, build back better policies. That's going to be very hard. Congress controls the power of the purse, the spending. They're going to rein all that in, and they're going to handcuff Biden and the Democrats and things like this. Nancy Pelosi's political career is over. Um, you will hardly hear a word from her or see anything from her now. She's basically a lame duck, normal uh, congressional rep from San Francisco with very little power going forward. And the other thing is Ukraine. And this is the big thing internationally. A lot of Republicans n do not want to write a blank check to Kiev. They don't support it. They don't want it. In fact, there's calls from people like Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, who went, uh, won a huge mandate in his race. 
61%, very similar to uh, Ron DeSantis in terms of margin of victory. He wants to audit every penny that goes to Ukraine, everything, wants to know where every dollar is going. And so there's a lot of resistance from a Democrat-controlled House. That could change under this new regime here. The other thing is the Republicans will more likely want to pursue diplomacy in Ukraine. So the the White House's position of uh, an ongoing open-ended proxy war, don't negotiate, you know, don't sue for peace, that might sort of shift now with the Republican-controlled House. So big implications there from the foreign policy. Now, regarding the Hunter Biden investigation, here's Joe Biden's reaction when he was asked about this yesterday. My (laughs) final question. Republicans have made it clear that if they do take control of the House, that they want to launch a raft of investigations on day one into your handling of Afghanistan, the border. Uh, They want to look into some of your cabinet officials. They want to investigate you. They may even want to investigate your son. What's your message to Republicans who are considering investigating your family and particularly your son Hunter's business dealings? Lots of luck in your senior year, as my coach used to say. Look, um, I think the American public wants to move on and get things done for them. And, uh, you know, I heard that there were, uh, it was reported, whether it's accurate or not, I'm not sure, but it was reported many times that Republicans were saying, and the former president said, how many times are you going to impeach Biden? You know, impeachment proceeding against Biden. I mean, I think, the re- I think the American people will look at all of that for what it is. It's just uh, almost comedy. I mean, it's, uh, but, you know. So Joe, str- Joe struggled through that press conference. But anyway, you can kind of see uh, it's comedy. It'll be comedy for, for him, he thinks, I guess. But uh, what they did is in- try to impeach Donald Trump twice uh, previously. So I think he's going to get one. They're going to get at least one look at uh, Biden on one of these things. So the other thing is Ukraine. So Zelensky uh, has gone on a PR offensive with Christian Amanpour and CNN and had this big sit-down interview. And he's, he's worried that Republicans are going to cut off the money to Kiev. He's really scared. He's really worried. Look at his face and look at what he says. He's making an appeal directly to the American people, saying, don't listen to your politicians. You're the people. You need to give me the money. Here's the clip. I want to ask you, because you're both sitting here with me at a time when the Americans have had an important election, midterm elections. It looks like it's not a massive, massive wave. But I wonder whether you worry that there may be donor fatigue in the West, maybe in the United States, with the economic pressures. Maybe if some Republicans say no more blank check for Ukraine. You've had a lot of American visitors here in these last few days, senior from the administration. Are you assured of uh, America's continued support and Europe's continued support? We would really like for the support, especially the amount of support, to stay the same and to have this joint support from the U.S. society and, above all, U.S. taxpayers, because at the end of the day, this is not the money of the government, but the money of the people. 
I noticed there, Patrick, he was speaking Ukrainian, and I wondered if you've got any thoughts on why he was doing that, uh, obviously for the American audience, but as we saw earlier with the video with Sean Penn, he was quite, he's quite capable of speaking English if he wants to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. It depends. It depends. I think Vladimir Putin speaks fluent English, but r rarely does so when doing any diplom diplomatic uh, presentations or interviews. Maybe it's because they can go more nuanced into their na native language they can't do when they're speaking English. Who knows? But the, the cheek of this guy to basically say, well, the U.S. taxpayers, you need to pay us. You need to send the money. So the, the bill they're talking about is $4 billion a month going forward. Oh, indefinitely, and the 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 tab's going to be picked up by the EU and the U.S. combined. Well, the EU doesn't have any money, and I don't think any member states. There's not a lot of appetite for this from member states, especially going into this winter. So they're really relying on the U.S. to provide that. And as you as I've explained, I don't think that's going to happen. So there might be some aid or some money or some some, some support, but it's not going to be to the scale that he's expecting. And all that money that's being laundered through there into Switzerland and these other places. Who knows where this money is ending up? But he's basically looks like he's wanting to pad his mattress um, in with the inevitable uh, result, which was he will be fleeing from power at some point in the near future. Um, I don't know how many times he's going to be able to delay an election in the country and have to explain to, to the public or whatever that this thing has been a total disaster for Ukraine. But... So this is kind of laughable, and you know, Vanessa showed the Sean Penn thing. I'll just throw that up on on screen here. So <laughs> Sean Penn, you know, uh, who who visited El Chapo um, as well, and this Oscar thing, Pensky and Zelensky. Um, this this kind of just says it all. Uh, an award for the best actor in a proxy war goes to uh, Zelensky. You can see the veins popping on Sean Penn there. I think he's gone. He's gone away for a few months and got his hormone replacement uh, therapy there, and he's ripped, and he was ready to come back to Kiev for that photo op just to flex right there on the camera. Yeah, What an absolute uh, maniac. But the, the, the big takeaway from the U.S. midterms, I'll say, this, this is regarded by many as a referendum on Trump, on Trumpism, um, and there's this, this internal debate, this power struggle is going to go forward now with the Republican Party. But I think that's going to energize the 2024 election. I don't know who's going to be the nominee, but still I think Donald Trump is in the catbird seat. But you've got a major challenge now for leadership. What's that going to mean politically in the U.S.? Um, it's going to be very interesting is all I'll say. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Patrick. Right. Vanessa, let's uh, come back to the U.K. then. Um, and uh, well, we're just going to come back to the Mariana Spring uh, story. Uh, and the Richard D. Hall story. And uh, here's the BBC, the UK terror survivors tracked down by disaster trolls. Yeah, I mean, you know, the wording in this article is very typical of Mariana Spring and what I call all these um, very young disinfo babes that are, are rising up through the ranks uh, of the BBC. This is basically an article attacking Richard uh, D. Hall for his investigation into um, the, Mas the, the Manchester bombing. Um, people can go and read the article, so I'm not going to go into huge depth about um, what his investigation has entailed. Um, one point that I'll make um, from this excerpt uh, is the, the, the sort of 
um, the dislike, if you like, that, that this um, disinformation conspiracy theorist, of course, that's immediately how he's portrayed, um, had more than 16 million views and 80,000 subscribers on his YouTube. There is always this element of, um, on the one hand, trying to dismiss those that challenge establishment narratives as, in my case, as an obscure blogger, um, in Richard D. Hall's case, as a conspiracy theorist, a disaster troll, um, et cetera, but while having to grudgingly accept um, that through our work, we have uh, acquired influence, and this is what they are fighting back against. Um, so let's look at this section. So she talks about, for the past five months, I've been looking into conspiracy theorists, so we're again into the conspiracy framing, um, uh, sorry, conspiracy theorist framing tactic. But then let's look at the connection to the Alex Jones case. We've discussed this previously. Why was the Alex Jones case so extraordinary? Um, well, here we go. These types of conspiracy theories and the abuse they inspire. So again, we're back onto the online harms. We're back onto the upset of, of the uh, Sandy Hook victims, those upset by Alex Jones's investigation into what he considers to be um, a hoax attack, um, and the abuse that these conspiracy theories inspire echo those of Alex Jones, the US host of the conspiracy show and website InfoWars, who this month was ordered to pay nearly $1 billion to families of the US Sandy Hook school shooting after falsely claiming the 2012 attack was a hoax. So here we here we see what's going on here. Mariana Spring is being instrumentalized effectively to push through policy like the online harms bills to crack down on conspiracy theorism, which of course includes that regarding um, vaccine injury, vaccine deaths, and the entire COVID uh, pandemic hoax. Here we have Mariana Spring confronting Richard D. Hall himself. Um, and there underneath that photograph, you come across the survey which um, Mariana Spring bases a lot of her conclusions upon. It's a survey carried out of 4,000 people weighted to be representative of the UK population. And if we move on, it's carried out by King's College London. Now, through my investigations into particularly Chloe Hadjamatio, um, another BBC producer who um, was uh, who produced the BBC Mayday series, which, as I mentioned before, was was really created to discredit those that had been exposing the role of the White Helmets inside Syria, but also the UK government's role um, in the destabilisation project. Um, against Syria. Um, she had also close connections to King's College London. Balinkat, of course, uh, Elliot Higgins, uh, I, I can't remember exactly his title, but he again had close links to King's College. Now, uh, what is this report called, or this survey called Truth Under Attack? It's astounding, isn't it, that whenever um, we challenge what their version of truth is. It is the truth that is under attack, not that they could ever be accused of presenting 
untruths or disinformation or lying through omission. Now, who was responsible for this survey? Um, a guy called Bobby Duffy, director of the Policy Institute, King's College London. So I had a quick look um, at who he is. This is from the King's College London website itself, King's People, Professor Bobby Duffy. Um, who is he? So as I said, he's the um, is Professor of Public Policy, sorry, and Director of the Policy Institute. He has worked across most public policy areas in his career of 30 years in policy research and evaluation, including being seconded to the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Now, which Prime Minister was that? None other than Tony Blair in 2001. He sits on several advisory boards, including um, chairing both the Campaign for Social Science and the Closer Advisory Board. So I need to take a deeper look into him, but he certainly seems to be very well connected to British government circles. Um, so let's have a look at the survey itself. I'm going to kind of whiz through it, but people can find um, the link, uh, I think, in our show notes, but also in the Mariana Spring article. So the vast majority of the public accept the reality of terrorist attacks in the UK, but notable minorities say they struggle to know what to believe or think we don't have the full picture. Now, what I do find very encouraging about this survey, Mike, is that there is a growing um, ins insistent minority that are refusing to accept government line on, on virtually anything, actually. So this is looking at the 7-7 attacks. One in eight believe the 7-7 attacks were probably a hoax, while one in six thinks attacks like 7-7 in Manchester did happen, but were not carried out by terrorists. So, so for me here, there are healthy, um, there is healthy questioning going on about whether the government, whether the mainstream media is telling the truth. Um, a third, um, then of course, what do they try to do? They try to um, determine who are these people who are questioning the establishment lines. So first of all, they say it's people that are disengaged politically. A third of people who didn't vote in the 2019 general election think the truth about the Manchester Arena attack is being kept from the public, and one in five think it was a hoax. Um, more generally, people who get their news from social media and podcasts too, are also more likely to think UK terror attack victims are concealing the truth about their experience. I think it's important to say here, people are not necessarily saying um, that these people are participating in what might be a false flag, it might be a hoax, but that these people are not necessarily um, entirely telling the truth about what happened. Um, moving on, um, sorry, where are we? Uh, I just wanted to go back to the one slide actually, Mike, because yeah. what was interesting, and we talked about it um, last night, is if we look at this down in Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, um, people who would definitely believe that the government is concealing something, that mainstream media is concealing something from them, um, uh, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, where we've seen the largest um, expansion of censorship on various issues, including, of course, on COVID, coming up to Telegram, which at the moment is far less censored than these three, 
right? And I, I, I take on board what you said, that, that we're being to some degree corralled into areas where we can discuss certain subjects, but that those areas are being narrowed down. For example, if we look now, Facebook is launching new tools to combat climate misinformation. So, of course, we know that that's um, being streamed in to replace the two-year-long COVID project narratives. Um, but again, those who get much of their news from non-mainstream sources are more likely to have heard theories about U.S. school shootings being fake. So again, the onus on um, social media, on independent journalism, on bloggers, on uh, Substack commentators, YouTube analysis, etc., is being blamed for a public um, distrusting their government. Of course, it has nothing to do with the fact that their government has systematically lied to them for decades, which has taken us to war in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, etc., and has led to the COVID um, lockdowns and, and consequent um, economic downturn. Um, <clears throat> nearly a third of the public think that the UK government has covered up terror attacks, while a quarter believe that the US government either assisted in 9-11 or took no action to stop it. Again, what I'm actually finding in this survey is a very encouraging picture of people really starting to, to wake up to what is going on in their world. Over a third also think there is deep state or other secret groups that really controls society. Again, healthy questioning in my view. A third say that the pandemic has made them more suspicious of official explanations of terror attacks. You can read that in, in many ways. Um, but again, interesting that the pandemic, um, here of course he's accepting that the pandemic is, is a real thing. Um, so but he's not questioning why that would have made people more suspicious of official explanations, not only of terror attacks. More broadly, conspiracies about COVID itself are believed by a notable minority, again, encouraging. The strongly accept groups stand out as the biggest believes, believers of or, sorry, specific conspiracies. So here you have, well, I mean, clearly, those that strongly accept the idea of um, government malfeasance or uh, media or government-aligned media malfeasance. Um, and then moving on, here again, the demographic between the groups. I recommend people go and look through this report for themselves. But interesting that here, they're also drawing attention to ethnic backgrounds. So, of course, then we kind of... Uh, siphon into the usual dismissal of conspiracy theorists being um, fascist or alt-right uh, or white nationalist, etc. So what for me I take away from this is of course from their point of view this is all negative. <laughs> what I take away from it is that actually this is a, a very positive review of um, the awareness within the public, within the population in the UK of quite what their government is up to and how they really don't trust either the government um, or the media. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Vanessa. And Patrick, uh, just very quickly then, let's just talk about uh, Twitter uh, and Elon Musk suggesting there are problems ahead. 
Well, the, yeah, there's there's a kind of a, a warning going up. Uh, some, a lot of executives have fled, uh, including some of the sort of the top sort of officers and, and so forth. Some of them have been kicked out or pushed out. But there's just talk. He's saying, you know, there needs to be massive cost cutting here um, or, you know, the company is going to go bankrupt. So what does this reveal? This is very interesting. And it's very much uh, uh, falling on from what Vanessa is talking about. Twitter is is effectively a, a heavily subsidized loss leading political project it has been for a number of years so there was no attempt really made by the previous owners and the board uh, to ever make it profitable to ever generate any kind of revenue that would sort of cover its costs so it's basically sitting there on the stock market as a kind of loss leader it's a political project it's a massive censorship farm that's honeypotted the national conversation it's the digital public square and it was being heavily censored systematically still to this day they haven't fully stopped everything yet i think it's probably a big job to deconstruct and unwind this thing even uh, tucker carlson got a fact check slapped on him by twitter uh, for his reporting on the arizona election so i mean go figure right in the middle in the heat of a huge controversy is being slapped with a a fact check warning, uh, a major, the, the leading sort of talk show host in America. That's still going on Twitter. It's a political project. It's a censorship farm. And they're, they've proven to be working directly with government agencies. So Elon Musk, the new owner, is looking at this and basically saying this is not a viable business. Uh, however, I think he's just doing a little, uh, he's shaking, shaking the blanket, as it were, to get some of the dust out that if uh, under new management, uh, everywhere he's gone, he has made money. So if he turns this around, I have no doubt this is going to be a trillion-dollar company uh, if if Elon Musk um, uh, has his way with this business and his partners for the next few years. They will go public again, and the IPO on Twitter is going to be huge if they do. So all of these people that put the money in to buy this company, they didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart or to altruism. I'm sure he is a free speech proponent and in his heart, he probably is on a mission here, but the ultimate goal is to refloat this company and to put it on the stock market and to make it a trillion dollar company like Facebook and Google and the other uh, big tech platforms. So that's what I think is going to happen. Uh, how soon that happens and what the timeline is for that, I don't, I'm not sure, but I think it's going to happen. And uh, already they've made um, some changes that are going to make it uh, profitable, or at least breaking even. Um, if they can stay the course, but at the moment it's it's a, a disaster. Yeah, um, he's taking a look under the hood here at Twitter. It's an absolute train wreck of a company that they're running. So it's a political project, and he's trying to transition it into something else. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm going to be very interested to see how he uh, does that once he starts hitting, uh, you know, legislation like uh, Online Safety Act when it becomes an Online Safety Act, and also uh, particularly the EU, of course. Uh, uh, with their equivalent, so we'll see how that goes. Now, look, I just want to end with uh, with uh, med medications, medicines, and uh, and vaccines in particular. And let's just have a look at this uh, this cartoon that the MHRA pushed out this morning, because of course uh, uh, this is the end of uh, a week of celebration of medicines by the uh, MHRA. And this is really uh, this is how they speak to the public. Uh, this is how would they let people know that they should be making yellow card reports with their little cartoon characters. Uh, it is so condescending and patronizing. 
I don't even know where to begin. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, what has the MHRA done? Well, today they've decided to approve the second Pfizer-BioNTech bivalent COVID-19 booster vaccine. Uh, approval has today been granted by the Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency for a Pfizer-BioNTech uh, bivalent COVID vaccine that targets both the original strain of SARS-CoV-2 uh, and uh, BA4 and BA5 subvariants. Uh, the vaccine has been approved for use as a booster in doses in individuals aged 12 years and above. Uh, and this decision has been endorsed by the Commission on Human Medicines. Uh, and then they go on to say that the decision is based on all available evidence on the original Pfizer-BioNTech uh, COVID-19 vaccine and its adapted vaccines. This includes extensive safety and effectiveness data for the original vaccine, uh, clinical data from the bivalent original Omicron BA1 vaccine, and safety data from an ongoing clinical trial. So they acknowledge in their press release that this is an ongoing clinical trial and effectively the general public are part of that. Uh, so they finish off by saying uh, these show that the common side effects of the, the data that they have shows that the common side effects observed with the new bivalent vaccine were the same as those seen for other versions of the vaccine. These side effects were typically mild and self-resolving with no new safety concerns identified. Uh, well, of course, uh, the reason that there are no new safety concerns identified is because they're ignoring the safety concerns and the uh, clear evidence of safety disasters uh, with respect to all the COVID-19 vaccines um, and uh, pressing ahead regardless. So I just want to end the program today by uh, reminding everybody uh, of the uh, Children's Health Defence Europe press conference taking place on Monday on this issue. Uh, we'll have it on the UK Column website. Uh, begins at 9 a.m. live, uh, UK time, 10 a.m. Uh, European time, uh, and that's taking place in Brussels. Please do watch that on Monday morning uh, if you can. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, with some extra, but otherwise uh, we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Monday uh, as usual. Um, so have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you then.